Hello and welcome. My name is Alice and this is the Backtracker History Show podcast, where I ask you to join me on a meander down through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at UK the capital B, capital T and a capital UK or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk Now, on with the show. Now, today's story occurred in 1932. And what else happened that year? Well, on March the 1st, Charles Lindbergh Jr., the infant son of Anne Morrow Lindbergh and Charles Lindbergh, is kidnapped from the family home near Hopewell, New Jersey. His body is found ten weeks later, not far from home. On March the 19th, the Sydney Harbour Bridge opens in Australia. On the 23rd of April, the new Shakespeare Memorial Theatre opens in Stratford-upon-Avon, designed by Elizabeth Scott. It is the country's first important work by a woman architect. On May the 20th to the 21st, Amelia Earhart flies from the United States to County Londonderry, Northern Ireland, in 14 hours, 54 minutes. And on November the 7th, Buck Rogers in the 25th century debuts on American radio. It's the first science fiction programme on radio. But we're concerned with events that happened on Sunday the 21st of August in an area of Bristol called Speedwell, where, during the final years of the colliery, an act of bravery took place which, at the time, touched the hearts of thousands of local people. It all started at about 8pm on the night of Sunday, August 21st, 1932, when Jack Emery, aged 43, a colliery fireman, who was the overman of the mine's number five district, went down the 380-yard deep shaft to check things over before the men of the night shift came in, this being the first inspection made in the district since the pit had finished work on Friday, as it had been closed for the whole of Saturday. He then met up with two of his friends who also worked in the mine, Isaac Kendall and Frank Plummer, at the station at about 10.45pm, where he instructed them to clear up any dirt in the district's bottom level before moving up the coalface to the top level, clearing away anything else they might find as they went. Word of the Week And for this week's word, I proudly give you... Apricity, which means the warmth of the sun in winter. 
During the inquest into the incident, Ernest Werrett of Derwent Road Speedwell, a shift fireman at the Speedwell pit, said the pit was not working on Saturday, August 20th, but had started again on the night of Sunday, August 21st, at 10 o'clock. Emery had gone on duty two hours before that, and during that time he would examine the working places, including number five level. At the inquest, the coroner asked Ernest Werrett a few questions. What would his duty there as to the reporting of the presence of gas in the workings? It's done for a book that is kept for that purpose. Would you describe this pit as a gassy mine or a free mine? It is a gassy mine. Work of lamps for gassy mine. Electric lights. Can you tell me from memory of the last entry in the report book of the presence of gas in that particular working? It may have been six weeks or two months ago. It was at this point that the coroner explained to the jury a plan of the part of the pit concerned, adding... It was in workings no longer used where the men were found. Kendall and Plummer had worked for four hours and the two men had completed work in the lower level by 3am. But shortly after, things began to change dramatically as they moved onto a point about 20 yards up the face which was only about two and a half feet in height. They began to feel the effects of bad air. And fortunately, it was only the firemen who normally had a flame safety lamp. So these men were unaware of what was affecting them until they became so impaired by the gas that they in fact started back up the face before finally collapsing in the waste against the rib of the coal, which formed the higher side of the district. Kendall and Plummer were now trapped in a disused part of the works, more than a mile from the bottom of the pit shaft. And when Jack hadn't seen Kendall and Plum by 4.30, he went to check on them and found them unconscious. He picked up the unconscious Kendall and carried him several yards to safety. Then he started back for Plummer, but before reaching the gas-laden area again, collapsed and died. During the inquest, Ernest Werrett continued giving his evidence, saying his theory to how the men came to be in the abandoned workings was that Plummer and Kendall had lost their way. The coroner continued questioning. What is your theory, Dr Emery? I can only conclude that when Emery went into the roads, he found the other two men in difficulties and went to get them out. Werrett added that he went on duty at 6am on Monday and when he did not see Emery and the two men, he became anxious. So, with F. Woodruff, a day fireman, he went down to the district. Woodruff had a locked flame lamp, and his lamp went out. This indicated either the presence of fire damp or black damp. Fire damp is flammable gas found in coal mines. It is the name given to a number of flammable gases, especially coal bed methane. The gas gathers in pockets in the coal and adjacent strata, and when these are penetrated, the release can trigger explosions. Historically, if such a pocket was highly pressurised, it was termed a bag of foulness. Black damp, on the other hand, is an asphyxiant, reducing the available oxygen content of the air to a level incapable of sustaining human life. 
It is not a single gas, but a mixture of unbreathable gases left after oxygen is removed from the air and typically consists of nitrogen, carbon dioxide and water vapour. Now alerted to a possible problem, a number of the day shift workers made straight for the number 5 district, arriving there at about 7am, and upon hearing groaning coming from behind the higher side pack, immediately began pulling stones out of the pack. Fortunately, it was not long before they reached Isaac Kendall, who was quickly dragged out, revived, brought to the surface, and after further treatment taken to his home nearby in Speedwell. While the frantic work to revive Kendall was still going on underground, word was sent to the colliery manager, Daniel Jones, who immediately put the emergency plan into operation and prepared to descend into the pit to lead the search for the two men still missing. The coroner asked, Do you also get carbon monoxide from exudation from the coalface? No, sir. Can you get it from any other source but an explosion? Yes, from gobfire. I think. But we have not got any gobfires in our mine. We were within 20 yards of the coalface, with the disused workings on one side of us. We heard very deep breathing coming from the old workings, and at the point where we could hear breathing the most distinctly, we removed some loose dirt. We could then see Kendall, and we got him out of the old workings. He was dazed, revived almost as soon as he got down to the fresh air. And on removing some more stones, we could see Emery about four yards higher in the workings. The atmosphere was very bad. We took some time to get to him. We tried artificial respiration for an hour, but without success. Book of the Week This week's offering, written by Janet Skeslian-Charles, is the Paris Library, a book set in two different time periods. It's well-written and engaging, and follows the experiences of Odil, a librarian, and Lily, a high school student. Much of the book is about the importance of books, the power of literature, the value of libraries, and above all, the wonderful profession of being librarian. This itself is a good enough reason for all book lovers to read this book. Based on the true World War II story of the heroic librarians at the American Library in Paris, this is an unforgettable story of romance, friendship, family and the power of literature to bring us together, perfect for fans of The Lilac Girls and The Paris Wife. It was a day shift fireman who was the next person to reach number 5 district, arriving there about 8am, and although by great efforts he succeeded in recovering Jack Emery's body, which was soon brought to the surface, it was quite impossible to reach Frank Plummer, who was trapped, but whose groans could clearly be heard. We could hear Plummer breathing quite distinctly, though he was some distance farther up the workings. We cut a roadway for about six yards towards him, but failed to reach him because the atmosphere was so bad that we were driven back. The pit's inadequate ventilation allowed the toxic gas to become an impassable barrier in the rescue of Plummer, and the Somerset Mines Rescue Centre in Midsummer Norton were called. They rushed to the scene with five sets of the Sieb Gorman proto-compressed oxygen breathing apparatus, arriving at 3pm. 
Wesley Wilcox, Frederick Woodruff and Bert Needs put the gas firefighting helmets on and went into the mine far enough to hear Plummer breathing. But a fall of coal and rock had recently happened, halting their progress. Just in, at an inquest into an accident at a boating lake, a witness said, There was a boating lake and people hired boats with numbers on them. The man in charge called through his megaphone, Come in number 91, your time is up. His colleague turned to him and said, We haven't got a 91. The first man got back on the megaphone and called out, Number 16, are you in trouble? The rescuers worked frantically, trying to clear a path, and when they managed to, they pulled Plummer clear, some ten hours after he first became trapped. He was then removed to a safe place where Mr Senior and his assistant, with several others, pumped oxygen into him from a reviving apparatus, and as Plummer's body was very cold after his long exposure, his rescuers also rubbed him until his respiration was working properly. The rescue operation finally came to an end at about 4.45 when Frank Plummer's inert body was brought to the surface and rushed by St John's Ambulance to the Bristol General Hospital where it was late evening before he regained consciousness. The site manager, Mr Jones, said I did not hear of the accident until I went to the pit at about 10.45am along with Mr Siddle, the inspector of the mines. I was told that I was wanted at a certain part of the pit. I immediately went there with the inspector and found that the night fireman, Jack Emery, was lying there dead. I found that he had lost his life in endeavouring to save his fellow workmen. Jack Emery's funeral was a magnificent affair and thousands of people gathered for about an hour and a half before the cortege left the family home at 43 Chester Park Road, Fishponds crowds lining both sides of Lodge Causeway. The nearby Morley Congregational Chapel, where Emery would regularly go every week, was full to overflowing and when the funeral procession eventually moved down over the causeway, about 50 miners, in fact most of the night shift with which he'd worked with, followed behind. Large crowds were also present at Greenbank Cemetery, where the coffin was covered in many Floral tributes. Although there was certainly evidence of sloppy practice having crept into the operation of the mine, this was probably due to the fact that it was obvious to everybody concerned that the management was considering ending production at Speedwell. It came as no surprise when it was announced that the colliery would close for good. On December the 24th, the reason given was difficulties in penetrating to a new seam, following the discovery of serious faults in the Kingswood Great Vein. It had been hoped that two new tunnels might be driven down to the new seam below the existing workings, but it was found impossible. Today, little can be seen at the site of the old Speedwell Colliery to indicate that coal was ever mined there, but hopefully 
the monumental inscriptions to be found on Grave 39, Plot Green RR, in nearby Greenbank Cemetery, will remain for many years to remind passers-by of the terrible toll in human life that for many years was taken for granted as a price that had to be paid to fuel industry and transport and to heat the nation's homes. An inscription on Jack Emery's grave reads, With sympathy from his fellow workers at Speedwell Colliery. It's interesting to note that Isaac Kendall, who was rescued first, lived a long life and died in 1966, aged an amazing 82. Hi, I'm Dietrich. I'm Alex. And I'm Ben. We're from the podcast That Song From That Movie, the journey through the very best and worst of movie songs. We want you to join us on our voyage across the cinematic sound waves as we take a deep dive on a new song and movie each week to figure out just what makes them tick. Already we've set sail with Celine Dion on the Titanic, found a friend in Toy Story, and gotten drenched out in the rain with Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Hopefully each breakdown allows us to answer the ultimate question of what's better, the movie or the song. Or at least learn something new along the way. Just like learning that Toy Story 4 is a meaningless cash grab without a soul. You can subscribe right now on all good podcast platforms. If you use one of the bad ones, then that's on you, and we can't be held responsible. Subscribe to that song from that movie. Back in the day facts. Firstly, on the 20th of February in 1547, the nine-year-old King Edward VI was crowned in Westminster Abbey, London. Also on the 20th of February, but in 1856, the steam packet ship John Rutledge, en route from Liverpool to New York, hits an iceberg and sinks with the loss of 120 passengers and 19 crew. There was only one survivor, Thomas Nye of New Bedford. On the 21st of February, in 1965, US black nationalist leader Malcolm X was assassinated as he began a speech to his followers at the Audubon Ballroom, just outside the district of Harlem in New York City. On the 23rd of February, in 1920, the Marconi Company began the first regular public radio broadcasting service from Chelmsford in England. It ran 30-minute programmes of readings from newspapers and gramophone records until the 6th of March. On the 24th of February in 1955, singer Ella Fitzgerald appeared at the then-called Colston Hall in Bristol. On the 26th of February in 1928, US rhythm and blues pianist and singer Fats Domino was born in New Orleans. During his career, Domino had 35 records in the US Billboard Top 40 and five of his pre-1955 records sold more than a million copies, being certified gold. His musical style is based on traditional rhythm and blues, accompanied by saxophones, bass, piano, electric guitar and drums. I hope you enjoyed today's story about the bravery of Jack Emery and agree with me that it was brought to life wonderfully by the vocal talents of Molly Jeffries, Henry Arnold, Marcus K.P. and Patrick Allen. (laughs) 
And now, you lucky people, you're in for a treat for your eardrums as I bring you a backtracker bonus. And today is about Pero Jones. Pero Jones was brought in 1765, aged 12, to work on a plantation owned by wealthy enslaver, plantation owner and sugar merchant John Pinney to work on his Mount Travers plantation in Nevis in the Caribbean. He was purchased with his sisters Nancy and Sheba and another African woman called Harriet for just £115, which is equivalent to 14500 today. Parrow was trained as a manservant and barber and also learned how to pull teeth. He was literate and enterprising, lending money at interest and buying and selling items for trade. The Pinnies took Pero and his sister Nancy as servants on their honeymoon, but when they went back to England in 1783, they only took Pero as a manservant and another servant called Fanny Coker. Fanny was free and paid a wage, unlike Pero who was given money from time to time. Perrow served as a personal servant to John Pinney for 32 years, and after his second trip back to his island home of Nevis, Perrow began to drink heavily, no one really knows why, and he became unreliable. His health declined, and to try and aid his recovery, the Pinney sent him to live in Long Ashton, where Pinney and his family visited him often, but still never gave him his freedom. Perrow died between May and November 1798, aged about 45. He never married, but he may have had children on Nevis. Mrs Pinney sent his belongings to his family in Nevis, selling his gold watch to buy his sister gold earrings. And Mr William Jones was buried at St Augustine's the Less on the 9th of June, 1798. This may have been perry by one of his other names. John Pinney's house is preserved at the Georgian House on Great George Street, near Brandon Hill. In March 1999, a new footbridge across the River Froome in Bristol Harbour was named after Perro, acknowledging Bristol's role in the slave trade. The name of Perro's bridge was first suggested by current cabinet member Paul Smith, who in 1999 was Bristol's city councillor chair of leisure, also on the Leisure Services Committee was then-councillor and later Liberal Democrat MP for Bristol West, Stephen Williams, who said at the time that he wanted a statue or permanent memorial to remember Bristol's role in the slave trade. This bridge has come up recently in the news as it's where couples go to put a lock on to commemorate their love for each other and throw the key into the river. Some people have been protesting that putting locks on a bridge dedicated to a slave may not be appropriate and they're petitioning to have all the locks removed. You have been listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. Now, this podcast has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. If you liked it, 
please leave a rating and maybe a comment. If you didn't, well, let's just leave it at that, shall we? I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me via Twitter or Facebook using at UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. Or alternatively, you can email me at info at backtracker.co.uk. By the way, the tune in the background, that's by The Model Folk. You can find out more about them at themodelfolk.com. So thank you so much for listening. And until next time, guys, take care and look after each other.